0: Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm very honored uh, to be able to join you uh, this Sunday. Uh, just a little bit more about how this came about, uh, the chance to be here with you this morning. Um, so last Sunday, our family was on vacation. We were in Mexico, and we were uh, having trouble finding a church to worship in, so we ended up not being at church last Sunday, and I felt so guilty. I said, okay, we're not going to make the same mistake next week when we're in the south, uh, southeast, so I sent a quick email to Pastor DL, said, we're going to be in town. We want to make sure that we're not missing a church for two weeks in a row, because we missed last week when we were in Mexico. Uh, and that's when he asked if I would be willing to, to preach. Uh, so I wasn't fishing. I was not really, really trying to actually get uh, time to preach. But um, again, the events of the past week have really uh, maybe sharpened our need to engage in some of the conversations that I hope we can talk about today uh, through the book of Lamentations. Uh, And I know that's going to be an unusual book for most in that many have not encountered Lamentations, but I'll I'll start with a little bit of background uh, on maybe why this book is so critical in our conversation today. Um, I'm at a particular age right now where I make the same New Year's resolutions every year. For the last 15 years, I've made the same New Year's resolution, Uh, and that is to lose a little bit of weight and to get a little more physically fit. Um, I make it every year because I fail. I just can't seem to lose that extra 15 pounds and get a little more fit. So this year, after 15 years of failing miserably to get more fit, I did what a professor or researcher does. I said, I'm going to try to find the best routine and the best program to make you more fit in life. And I went online and I found out that there's something called CrossFit P90X that's supposed to be the best program for physical fitness. Any of you all heard of this? CrossFit or uh, P90X. And um, what really struck me about this program is that it has an approach to exercise that essentially has been my approach all my life. It's something called muscle confusion. And the idea of muscle confusion is that you're supposed to confuse your muscles, which is what I do when I exercise. Because I don't go to the gym for months and months and months. And when we go to the gym, my muscles are really confused why we're there. So that's been my approach to exercise my entire life. I try to confuse my muscles by being just completely apathetic and not exercising for months, and then it disrupts my life. Um, What I'm finding is that sometimes that kind of disruption, that kind of sense of dis-ease, that kind of muscle confusion, or maybe even spiritual confusion, is not necessarily a bad thing. That even in your spiritual life, sometimes spiritual fitness and spiritual health, might require a disruption, a confusion, to deepen your spiritual walk. And that that kind of confusion, disruption, is actually a healthy thing. Now, I say this because I just, and it's right up here, my, the cover of my, my uh, second latest book. Uh, my, I finished uh, in, uh, last year, and this came out in, in October of, of 2015. I finished a book on, on the book of Lamentations. Right, exactly. Yeah, they're going to rush out and buy the book now because nobody wants a book on the book of Lamentations, right? I mean, Lamentations is probably the most obscure and underappreciated book of the Bible. How many of you have ever heard a sermon series on the book of Lamentation? I'm not talking about a sermon. There's one good verse in the book of Lamentations. You've heard that sermon. Uh, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end in chapter 3. You've heard a sermon on that. I'm talking about the entire. Five chapters of lamentations of just depressing, sad, the suffering, and lament after lament after lament. Most of us have not engaged in that book, or maybe that's the book that you stop at. You commit to read the Bible for a year, and you get to Lamentation, you just say, "All right, I'm done. I'm not reading the Bible for the rest of the year," because it's so depressing. It's such a downer. I worked five years on the book. My wife's going to sell about five copies. Nobody wants this book, because nobody wants to talk about suffering. Nobody wants to talk about suffering. And I was noticing this in worship life. Uh, There was a study done by one of my professors at Wesley Seminary. um, And she was looking at the trends of liturgical worship. And these would be churches that use the liturgical texts like the Catholic Church, the Episcopal Church, uh, the Methodist Church. And they're kind of given guidelines on what songs to sing, what books of the Bibles you're supposed to read. And what Dr. Hopkins found... Was that a typical church, when they get to lament or lamentations, would just drop it from the worship altogether. They just skip it and go on to the next passage. Or not sing those songs of lament. I know that right now you're going through a sermon series on the Psalms. There are 150 Psalms. 60 of those Psalms are what we call Psalms of Praise where you say, how great is our God, how wonderful is our God. It's appropriate to have those moments where we lift up the name of God with Psalms of praise. 60% of our 150 Psalms fall into that category. But 40% of our 150 Psalms are what we call Psalms of lament, speaking about brokenness, speaking about suffering. Glenn Pemberton did a similar study to Dr. Hopkins, and Pemberton noted that if you look at a typical Presbyterian or a typical Baptist hymnal, you'll find that only 15%, approximately 15% of those hymns are what we would call lament songs, songs about suffering. And the other 85% are songs of joy, songs of celebration. In other words, we are disproportionately underrepresented in lament in our hymnals. And that, by the way, is just what's in there. It's not even what's typically sung on a Sunday. So I did the same thing, and I applied it to the CCLI licensing company. Any of y'all know what CCLI is? So every time you project a contemporary worship song on the screen, at the very little, you're supposed to do this, at the very bottom of the screen, you're supposed to have a little number, CCLI number, it's like a six to eight digit number, and that gives you the permission to project these contemporary worship songs onto the screen. Now you do that, once you do that, You're supposed to write to them like once a month or so to let them know, hey, we sang that song, keep a record. And they keep a record of all the songs that are sung that are contemporary worship songs on a yearly basis. And they publish that once a year in August so that the person who wrote the song can get their half-cent royalty for writing that song. So now you've got this song that's projected on the screen and a list of songs that are typically sung on a typical American church on a weekend. How many of you say, just like in the Bible, that the the top 100 songs, I'll take that, 40% of our worship songs, contemporary worship songs, are psalms and songs of lament about suffering, about pain. Just like in the Bible. No, 40%. How about 25%? One quarter of our songs are songs about suffering and lament. How about 20%? About 15%? 10%? I think about... Five out of the top 100 worship songs that we sing, five to 10, might qualify as a lament song. And I'm using the word lament in the most generous ways I can think of. The song starts, I cry out. Oh, finally, a lament song. (laughs) The rest of it is, I cry out for joy. No, I still have to count it. It's so sad how few lament songs we have. I'm still going to count it as a lament song. In a liturgical worship service, In a typical traditional worship service and in a contemporary worship service, we don't engage the stories of lament. We don't talk about human suffering. Why? Because we live in a society that wants quick and easy answers. We want to live in a society where, no, there are no problems in the world. There's no such thing as racial injustice or racial conflict. All we have to do is come to church, join hands, sing kumbaya, and say, I love you, man. And all of the problems will be washed away. We want simple answers. It's not biblical. It's American. It's the way Americans think. We want simple answers. We want to fast pass the Disney. And we really do want to fast pass the Disney. <laughs> <laughs> we, want, we want shortcuts. We want quick and easy answers. But we don't want to stay in that place of suffering for any longer. That's why we avoid the Psalms of Lament, the stories of Lament, the songs of Lament. Which is why I want us to be introduced to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is written in a particular context. It was, uh, and if we go to the slides, I I don't know if you got the, let's go to Lamentations chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read that for us. Actually, why don't we all stand and read because this is the first time you've read the book of Lamentations. So let's make it count. Chapter 1, verse 1. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Verse 2. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Verse 3. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distresses. Okay, you may be seated. You get a little flavor of lamentations here. And there's actually some very specific things that are happening. If you go to verse 3, for example, it talks about the exile. That there was much affliction and there was harsh labor. And now they're sent away into exile. Most of you know the story. Uh, Israel had once been this great nation under King David and King Solomon. David was a great military leader, and he was able to conquer the lands around him. Uh, Solomon was a great actually, economic leader, and he was able to accumulate wealth for the nation of Israel. So under these two kings, Israel becomes kind of a superpower during its time. Um, What happens, though, is that the subsequent kings are not as good as King David and King Solomon. Uh, They split the country apart. Uh, they start worshiping false gods and setting up places where the idolatrous worship occurs. There's deep disobedience against the word of God throughout the nation of Israel. And so after many generations of these false worship and bad kings and bad rulers, God has to bring judgment upon the nation of Israel. And so he sends these conquerors from the north. First, the Assyrians come and wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel. And then the Babylonians come, they wipe out the southern kingdom of Judah, and the only thing left is the city of Jerusalem itself. And Jerusalem is the last stronghold of this once former great nation. But the Babylonians are ruthless. They starve out the residents. And once they defeat Jerusalem, they say, we are, we are so mad at you for, hang, uh, for holding out on us, we're going to devastate you. We're going to wipe out your city. We're going to take all the treasures that you have and take them back to Babylon. And not only that, we're going to salt the fields and burn them so that you can't even grow crops anymore. And not only that, we're going to take all your able-bodied, your intelligentsia, your prophets, priests, kings, anybody who can rebuild your society, we're going to take them and send them away into exile into Babylon. That, of course, is where many of us encounter the story of Daniel and his friends who are the the young, learned uh, men with potential They just took them away and left behind women, children, widows, orphans, the sick, the lame, and the blind. They're the only ones that are left behind in Jerusalem at this moment in history. And that's when the book of Lamentation comes up. Now what happens though is that Jeremiah, who's been kind of watching this whole thing and saying to them, you need to give up. Israel, Jerusalem, you need to give up because this is the judgment of God. And once the exile occurs, because the Babylonians knew there was this guy named Jeremiah supporting them, said, Jeremiah, you can stay behind. You're okay. You're on our side. So he's probably one of the very few literate uh, men who are around after the exile. So Jeremiah writes a letter. We find this in chapter 29. And in this letter, and we're going to go over this, uh, the first one, not so much the second one. He offers two different options for the nation of Israel. And then a third option he offers, not in Jeremiah, but in the book of Lamentations, which follows Jeremiah. Now let's go back to that slide of the two different options. The first option that he offers is that you might want to run away and hide at this moment. Things are so difficult. Things are so messed up. You've lost your home. You've lost your city. You've lost your capital. And there you are in the midst of all places, Babylon. And you know the biblical story. Babylon is consistently the most wicked place in the world. You see this all the way throughout the scripture, and certainly at the, by the book of Revelations, that's been established in the biblical witness. Babylon is the center of all that is wrong with the world, in contrast to Jerusalem, which is God's heavenly city. So given that, you might be tempted to run away and hide. Or, first option, the second option is, you might be tempted to give in to the world around you. Give up or give in. So let's look at that first one because I want to focus on that option first. And that response comes from Jeremiah in chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. Most of you are familiar with this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Uh, to those I carried you into exile into Babylon build houses settle down plant gardens eat what they produce marry have sons and daughters find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have children increase in number there do not decrease verse seven is a key verse that many of us have heard before seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile which is what city Babylon Babylon now, 99.9% of the time in the Bible, in the Old Testament, when you see the phrase, seek the peace, what city comes after that? Seek the peace of Jerusalem. Very basic formula throughout the Bible. Seek the peace of Jerusalem, except here. And here it says, not seek the peace of Jerusalem, but seek the peace of all places, Babylon. Babylon. Now Jerusalem seeking the peace of makes sense. That's the heavenly city, David's city, the city that God had lifted up as the capital of the chosen people. But to seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon, the center of all that is wrong with the world, the center of all wickedness, the magic kingdom of evil, so to speak, you can't, you can't realistically expect God's people to say we are going to seek the peace Of Babylon. It's in contrast to the rest of the testimony of scripture, which says, seek the peace of Jerusalem. So why does God say this? Because he's saying to the people who are in the center of the most wicked city of their time, even in the most wicked city, you are not allowed to give up. Even in the midst of the most satanic place you can think of, you are not allowed to give up. Even if the world around you is totally against you, and you think the entire world has turned against you, and you're in the midst of Babylon, you are not allowed to give up. As Christians, we do not ever have the option of giving up, even if the world around us has fallen apart. Even if we're in the most wicked place imaginable, we do not have the option of running away and hiding. Now, I mention this because historically, American Christians have oftentimes run away and hid when changes have occurred, when challenges have occurred. American Christians have typically said, we want to have nothing to do with the world out there, and we want to run away and hide. One of the most significant examples of this occurs in the 19th and 20th century. Prior to the 19th century, churches in America saw themselves as this great Wonderful light to the world. In fact, the first governor of Massachusetts looks at the city of Boston and says to the city of Boston, that city is going to be a city set on a hill. And the light of the gospel will go forth from these American cities like Boston and New York. And God will bless the nations through these cities. And that was the original vision of these American cities. But something changes in the 19th century. These cities that had been home to white Anglo-Saxon Protestants began to become home to a new group of people moving in to these promised lands. And it wasn't Western European Protestants anymore. It was actually Catholics from Italy. It was Jews from Poland. It was Orthodox from Greece and from Slo- uh, Slo- uh, Slovakia. So all of a sudden, you had a group of people moving into the cities that were not Western Protestants, European Protestants, they were Southern European and Eastern European, oftentimes Catholic Jews and Orthodox Christians. How many of you have heard the movie Gangs of New York? Uh, DiCaprio and uh, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis are the two leads. Uh, Scorsese directed it. Uh, When I first heard about the movie, I was very excited. It was about a race war in New York. Now, I write a lot about race. I said, this movie is going to be awesome. A race war in New York. It's exactly what I want to write about. I'm watching the movie about halfway through. I'm like, this is not a race war in New York. You got one gang led by Daniel Day-Lewis, who is the whitest actor in Hollywood, fighting a second group led by Leonardo DiCaprio, the second whitest guy in Hollywood. (laughs) And how did this become a race war? Well, you know why? Because one group were the Western European Protestants and the other group were the Southern Europeans or the Eastern Europeans who were coming from Catholic, uh, 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 Catholic, Orthodox, and other faiths. And so we had this conflict in these cities. And the cities, which many people said were Jerusalems and Zions, become what? Babylons. They become Babylons. In fact, there are a number of journals that I read through in the 18th and 1900s. And they talk about our cities are no longer Zions and Jerusalems, are no longer the city set on a hill. They have become caves and dens of rum and Romanism. This kind of exoticized image of these evil, wicked places, these urban centers. But A second event also occurs during the same time period. And that's the movement of African Americans from the southern states, mainly in the Mississippi Delta, moving into the urban centers like Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, Baltimore, and Philadelphia. Now, I, I'm a professor of evangelism. I follow evangelism programs. And I look at the most successful evangelism programs. The most successful evangelism program ever in U.S. history is not Billy Graham. It's not the seeker-sensitive movement. It's not any of these kind of 20th century movement. The most significant evangelistic program ever is the conversion of African Americans post-Civil War, post-emancipation Proclamation. Anywhere from 75 to 95% of African Americans, after slavery ends, convert to Christianity, start churches, join denominations. They become Methodists, Pentecostals, Holiness, Baptists, uh, all these denominations. And the African Americans who convert in huge numbers within a generation to Christianity move from the South to the North. And what do they do when they get to cities like Chicago and Detroit? They start churches. The very first mega churches in the U.S., it was not Bill Hybels, it was not Rick Warren, it was African American churches on the south side of Chicago. 2,000 member churches when the cities were not that large. One of the largest black churches in the north was a 10,000 member church in Detroit. And this is when Detroit was not that huge of a city. You had one church with 10,000 members. This is not even counting the thousands of smaller storefront and neighborhood churches that African-Americans planted all over the Midwest and on the East Coast. And so this was not a secular population. They were not a non-Protestant population. They were Baptists, Methodists, Pentecostals, Holiness, every denomination, Protestant denomination. They were moving and starting massive churches. But what happened when African-Americans moved into these urban centers? White Protestants decided the cities are not safe anymore. Our neighborhoods are not safe anymore. We need to move from the city to the suburbs. And we need to move and run away in very large numbers. And sociologists and historians now call this white flight out of the city into the suburbs. Now, what happens is that that group moves from the city to the suburbs and start moving into places where there's nothing kind of like this neighborhood. So you go into neighborhoods (laughs) where there's no houses anywhere, right? But then within five years, you have a zero population that starts building these suburban homes to a 50,000 population. You see this everywhere in almost every major city within the last 50 years. You have nobody there except cornfields and orange trees and overnight, you see 50,000 people move in. Now a shrewd church moves in ahead of that and said, we're going to be right there when the people move into that neighborhood. So within five years, your neighborhood went from zero to 50,000. Your church goes from zero to 5,000. And then you write a book, How to Grow Your Church from Zero to 5,000 in just a couple of years. And so you had this movement out of the city because people were running away from the world. They were running away from the world. Saying, so We want to have nothing to do with the problems out there. We just want to be safe. In our world. Now, what was interesting is that from 1945 to 1960, when a lot of this white flight occurs, or this movement of Christians out of the city into the suburbs occurs, in 1945, about $15 million was spent by U.S. churches in new building construction. That's, that's a really small number. By 1960, that number goes to $1 billion spent on a yearly basis on new construction and buildings. Why? Because they're leaving the urban city churches and moving to the suburbs and building new construction. So that number goes from 15 million to 1 billion within 15 years. It shots up. And people are building new buildings in the suburbs. And oftentimes, if you can go to that slide, I think it's the next one, church buildings start looking like this. You're you're trying to do it here, but you can't do this in Florida as well. But uh, you see in the Midwest, buildings that were built in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, all of them have sanctuaries that look like this. If you're not from Florida, how many of you have seen buildings that look like this? Yeah. Very common architecture during a 30 to 40 year period. Now, I came to the U.S. in the early 1970s. I attended a building dedication of our immigrant church in the late 1970s, and they had built the architecture that looked like this. And I'm seeing this thing and I'm saying, this is the stupidest building I have ever been in. This is just a really, really bad idea. I was in a cold weather climate. The building dedication was in February. So you guys don't understand this. But in a cold weather climate, you have the heating baseboards and it's like zero degrees outside. Where does all the heat go in a building that looks like that? Right up into the rafters, right? So what do you have to do? You have to build ceiling fans to push all the hot air down. And then charismatics can't worship with you because they hit their hands on the ceiling fan (laughs) like this. So you end up with with church architecture that makes absolutely no sense. Why would you build a building like this in, in Chicago in the middle of February when all the heat goes right up into the rafters? So I'm 10 years old. I'm in a building dedication and I already know this as a 10-year-old. This is a stupid idea. And I'm thinking, whose stupid idea was it to build a building like this? The senior pastor gets up to dedicate the building and he says, it was my idea to build a building like this. And he starts explaining why. He says, I want you to picture this entire church building turned upside down at the next slide. And he says, what does this building look like to you? He says, it's Noah's Ark. It's a very big ship. We turn it right side up again. Yes, it's the building church, but it's also Noah's Ark. Now, think with me. If you tell your congregation that your church is Noah's Ark, What are you saying about your church's relationship to the world out there? As long as we are safe in Noah's Ark, we don't care what happens in the world out there. Let the judgment of God come and wipe out the world for all we care, as long as we're safe in Noah's Ark. And in Noah's Ark, we're going to build everything that's out there, just kind of, you know, watered down versions of it. If the world has their art, we're going to do really bad Christian art. If the world has secular music, we we'll are gonna have really, really bad Christian music. If the world has harlequin romances, we'll have Christian harlequin romances. If the world has movies, we'll have really, really bad Christian movies. So everything that's out there, you develop a Christianized version of it as long as you're safe in Noah's Ark. You've effectively run away from the world. Now, how do you do evangelism out of Noah's Ark? Very badly. Here's what happens in Noah's Ark. And you see Uncle Joe floating by. Uncle Joe, we love Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe, come on aboard. We throw out a life raft for you and we bring you on. We are so glad you're here. You're going to fit right in on this ark. You know, you, 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 you look like us and you talk like us and, and you like the same kind of foods and you, and you clap on the right beat and you do all the things that we like to do on this ark. We're so glad you're here on this ark. And then a neighbor floats by. And you pause. You know, he borrowed my mower about two weeks ago and he hasn't given it back. Not only that, I'm not sure he's going to fit on this ark. He's not going to like the foods we like. He doesn't, he's not going to get the jokes that we like to tell. He claps on the wrong beat. He's going to want to sing songs that we don't, we're uncomfortable with, maybe even another language. We just don't know if he's going to fit on this ark. So maybe there's an ark down the street that will be more appropriate for his kind of person. For his family, there is another ark somewhere out there that's going to save him. And so we developed a way of doing church where we are so segregated and separated from one another because we want, first and foremost, safety and comfort in our church. When actually, maybe that's not what the church is supposed to be out after all. We have run away and hid rather than engaging a broken world around us. That's been one of the ways that we have failed as a church in the world. And I raise this because, and I'm going to speak specifically in the context of Asian American Christianity. Asian American Christianity has oftentimes had the possibility of running away from issues of race. And and I can say this because my family immigrated to the United States in 1973. So when we talk about slavery, you know, Folks can say, well, I've never owned a slave. I've really never owned a slave. We weren't even around when people were holding slaves. We were in another country altogether. We weren't even thinking about coming to the U.S., so clearly I'm not guilty about slave ownership. Well, we never took land away. I never personally took land away from Native Americans, especially for Asians. Yeah, we just came in the 1970s. All of that happened much earlier. Jim Crow laws before our time. Slavery before our time. Genocide of the Natives all of that happened way before our time. So maybe Asian Americans were looking for a pass. We're looking for an easy easy way out to absolve ourselves from the world's issues. To say that's not our problem. If black folks and white folks can't get along, they have a history, and we have nothing to do with that history. We just walk away from it because we're Asian Americans. We came much later than that. I was grappling with this when I was asked to speak to a group of Harvard Asian American students. Uh, and... I, I'm talking about issues of race, and I can kind of read it in their eyes. This has nothing to do with us. We were not around when all of this went down. We are recent immigrants to the U.S. All that racial injustice, tragedy, doesn't have anything to do with us. I raised the issue, and I said, at Harvard University, the land that Harvard University occupies, how did Harvard get that land? Whose land was it originally? Originally? And what sort of treaty was broken? What sort of false bargain was made? What sort of, uh, of warped theology led to the idea that it was okay for Europeans and just kind of take over the land that's Cambridge and Boston and try to build a city set on a hill and push the Native Americans out? So you're on land that doesn't really belong to you and yet you benefit from that injustice from centuries ago. And the money that built Harvard University And let's go around and look at the statues of dead white men whose money helped build Harvard University. Where did they get their money? They built a a university that you have magnificently benefited from. And once you graduate from Harvard, you'll go out there and get the job of your choice. You'll go out there and get the graduate school of your choice. And that didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of a system of injustice. And you have benefited from that system of injustice. And so you can't walk away and say, it's not my problem. You are a part of a system of injustice. I put it in these terms. Let's say you want to start a business. And I say, I want, you to, I want to help you start a business. And in fact, I own a, a small uh, area in, uh, in downtown Orlando. So I'll give you that store for free. You don't have to pay any rent on it. The building, I'll just give it to you for free. And you know, I've got some cousins who are really not doing anything right now. They're going to come and work for you for the next 50 years for free. Don't pay them. Just don't just work for you for free. And whatever's in that store, whatever's in the warehouse behind the store, all yours. Take whatever you want. All of it is free. Now, you would have to be the worst business person in the world to fail as a business person right now, right? I just gave you free land and free labor and said, you can do whatever you want with it. And if you fail at that business, you don't deserve to be a business person at that point because you've been given the two most important things, free land and free labor. So in American history, we took free land. We finagled deals and went back on treaties to take land from Native Americans. And then we shipped and imported free labor. So the economy that is booming is based upon free land, and free labor. And so if we benefit from that system of injustice, then we are also responsible to that system of injustice. And we have to deal with that reality. Whether you're an Asian American or another ethnic group, as Asian Americans, even though we can say we came much later than all that history, we are still benefiting from that history. We have to deal with the reality of a broken world. And we've especially seen this in the last week. We've seen a broken world that is especially fractured along racial lines. I want to point to, if we go to Lamentations 1, go to the next slide here. Lamentations 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 4 are something we uh, identify as a funeral dirge. And it goes over some of the basic characteristics here. It begins with the Hebrew word akah. chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4. Um, It's the... Usually translated in your Bible as how, uh, it's a little bit of a weak translation. What you really need to understand is that when the word "akah," it's like this angst-filled proclamation. It's more better translated as how tragic, how devastated, how crushed, how can this be? So usually when the, uh, the phrase "akah" begins a Hebrew poem, it's a, it, it, it sets your mind up and says, okay, what's going on here? Something tragic is happening. And it's most of the time used as the beginning of a funeral lament or a funeral dirge. Uh, If you go to the next slide, another characteristic of this is what we call the kina meter. Uh, Scrabble players, best scrabble word ever. Q word does not have a U, Q, Q I, N, A, H. It's, uh, It's a Hebrew word meaning limping meter. So most of Hebrew poetry is very simple. Hebrew poetry is usually characterized by six beats followed by six beats, five beats followed by five beats. Hebrew doesn't really operate in terms of rhyme. It really focuses on rhythm and meter. So if you see Hebrew poetry in the Psalms, there'll be six beats, six beats, five beats, five beats, six beats, six beats. Very basic metering in Hebrew poetry. But every once in a while, they'll throw you a little curveball. So instead of six beats, six beats, it'll be six beats, four beats. Five beats, seven beats. Eight beats, four beats. And it throws you off a little bit. The rhythm is off a little bit because poetry is supposed to be balanced and even. But kina meter says, actually, it's a little bit off. And the intent of that, of course, is that it is a limping meter. Five beats, three beats. Six beats, four beats. And it shows that you are wounded and something is not right, that you can't walk straight and in the proper rhythm. Something has disrupted your life. So there's a number of these characteristics throughout the book of Lamentations that show Lamentations chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4 are written intentionally in the genre of a funeral dirge, a funeral eulogy. What I want to point out is that a funeral event is very different from your typical lament in the Psalms. Think of it this way. You have a friend who's sick in the hospital. You go visit them. You pray with them. You lament with them. And the Psalms are filled with these kinds of lament where you pray, Lord, raise this person up or raise this nation up or raise your people up. And you have the hope because they're not dead yet, they're in the hospital, that things are going to get better. That hospital visit is what most laments in the Psalms operate like. Lamentations is not a hospital visit, it's a funeral service. And you do not act in a funeral service the same way you act in a hospital visit. That would be completely inappropriate. You don't walk into a funeral and says, I'm going to go up there and raise this person from the... Come on, wake up, wake up! Sure, you certainly shouldn't do that, right? Because you don't treat an actual dead body the way you would treat a sick or hurting body. I think part of the problem with race relations in America is that we think we're going to a hospital visit when actually we're going to a funeral. Because the history of American race relations is littered with dead body after dead body after dead body. And if we don't deal with the reality of the dead body that is in the middle of the room, we would never understand why race is such a complex issue. We like to think, well, the person is just sick. We'll pray, we'll get better, kumbaya, we're on our way. Hey, all we need to do is just join hands and forgive one another. Everything will be okay. Okay. Hey, all we need to do is gather around that hospital bed and that person will rise up because of our prayers. You're not at a hospital visit. You're at a funeral. And you've got to deal with the dead bodies in the room. This is one of the realities that have really struck me over the years in my writing. My my doctoral dissertation was on African-American Evangelical Christianity. And one of the things that really struck me is the absence of the understanding of history when it comes to the African-American experience. I'll give you a little bit of a taste of this. The African slave trade begins on the west coast of Africa uh, for a number of different contextual reasons. There are, are battles that are fought, prisoners of wars are taken, uh, and, and the slaves are captured, and they're, and they're, and they're sold or they're, they're exchanged uh, for, uh, for the European colonists that have come to the, uh, to the uh, western coast of Africa. One of the first was uh, Prince Henry of Portugal. Portuguese were among the first slave traders in the west coast of Africa. Prince Henry was the son of the king of Portugal. And Henry pulls up in his slave ship, one of the very early slave ships in the 1500s, and he sees the the bodies that he's about to take possession of, and they'll become one of the first black bodies that will actually end up as slaves in the new world. And his assistant is someone by the name of Zurara. Zurara is his secretary, but also you can see him as a historian. And he writes down what's going on. The records show, Zerara's records show, and he writes that the page that he's writing on is drenched with his own tears. He's weeping as he's writing down the account of that very early slave trade because he knows and he sees this is not what God intended for his people. It is wrong to treat human life in this way. To, to take away their identity from their families, separate them from male and female, tear their whole lives apart, strip them naked, parade them out in chains. and in go- This is not right. So Zerara's tears wet the page that he's writing on because he knows this is not right. This is not what God intended for human beings to be treated. But there's something that comes along at that moment. As he is seeing... The slave trade being initiated, he determines that this is okay for two reasons. The first reason is he looks at Prince Henry and then says, Prince Henry is a godly man. I know he's a follower of Jesus, so what he is doing now must be okay. Because he's doing this, I will say that this slave trade is okay because the godly man has told me it's okay. The second thing that he does is he takes a tenth of the slaves that he was about to take into captivity and he offers them To the church, the priests that are with him, and offers a tithe of that chattel slavery to the priests, and the church accepts the tithe. So that from day one of the slave trade, the church is culpable and responsible and implicit in that slave trade. We can't turn a blind eye. We can't turn away as it is no problem with race when the church at the very beginning of the slave trade said, we're going to take that 10% and we're going to give you the permission to continue the slave trade. The bodies are crammed into the hull of the ship. They are laid side by side as if they are dead. Dead bodies transported across the the waters of the Atlantic. We know that there were... uh, Uh, hunger strikes that were were conducted on that slave trade. We also have archaeological evidence that they have created these crowbar-like implements to pry open the mouths of the slaves so they can force-feed them and so that they wouldn't lose that property as they're doing the transatlantic slave trade. Some would rush for the side because they would have no hope of what was going on. They would rush to the side or dead bodies would be thrown overboard. Again, well-documented historically that schools of sharks would follow along to devour the easy meal that would come over on a frequent basis. These bodies would arrive on the eastern seaboard of the United States or the colonial, the, the, the colonies. And they would arrive on a Sunday and the ship would come out and then the auctioneer would say, it's time for the, the auction to sell these human bodies. And if it was a Sunday, the church bells would ring and the church bells would ring and the church bells would chime and the auction bells would chime and the two would go on simultaneously. And the good people who had just sang praise God from whom all blessings flow, would come down to the dock and join the auction and purchase slaves for that day. So that the worship bells would ring in in tandem with the auction bell. That there was this permission given by the church. Sure, it's okay to sing praises to God and then go right down the street and purchase human life. They would take the slaves, bring them to the plantation. The abuses that would occur on that plantation. The... African uh, uh, slaves would try to rebuild their lives in some way. And one of the best ways they could rebuild their lives was to try to form families. Because the families had been ripped apart. They were separated from the families as soon as they were put on the as soon as they were taken captive, as soon as they were taken to the slave castles, as soon as they were put into the slave ship, their identity was gone, their families were taken away, and so they would try to rebuild those families on that plantation. So they would couldn't have any kind of formal ceremony. So they invented a ceremony of their own and it still goes on today, the idea of jumping the broom because nothing else was allowed for them in order to have a full marriage ceremony. They would jump the broom and again in many African American communities that tradition still continues. So they would try to rebuild their lives. But the slave owner would say, this is the worst thing that could happen to me because if they have families, they're going to recover their dignity. So the best way to destroy the family is to assert my authority over that family, and the best way to do that is to rape the new bride. They would go into the slave quarters, pull out the husband, take him and hold him down while the slave owner would systematically rape and sexually abuse the wife just to show who's in charge of this plantation. And that's why so many African Americans will trace back to some white blood Most of that is back to the slave plantation where the rapes would occur on a frequent and systematic basis. Every attempt was made to destroy the black family. That's why I get so incensed when I hear Christians, Christians or political pundits say, what's wrong with the black family? It's the black family's problem. If the only the black families can get themselves together. We spend 500 years as a nation doing everything to destroy the black family. The entire history of American society was geared to destroy and devastate the black family. The black family now is a miracle that it survived all these years despite historical, sociological, political every societal attempt to destroy the black family and yet it still persists. Yet the faith still persists. The black family is a miracle. These are the stories we need to know that the conflict between a young black man and a police officer has a context, has a historical reality that we're dealing with a funeral, not a hospital visit. Not long after Michael Brown was shot, a group of about 50 Christian leaders were invited to Ferguson, Missouri, This was about a year, not long afterwards, I think it was that winter after he was shot in the summer, the non-verdict had just come down, about 50 of us from all over the country, all different race, nationality, we were all gathered together in Ferguson and St. Louis to kind of talk as a Christian community. There were leaders of a historic black denomination, uh, Dr. Carol Baltimore, who uh, is the uh, leader of the National Baptist, uh, Baptist Conference, along with kind of young, hipster, white evangelicals like Shane Claiborne. Uh, so it was kind of an interesting spectrum of, of leaders from all over uh, the United States, 50 of us gathered. And we were really trying to figure out what was going on. One of the first things we did was not go to right to the site of the shooting, but we actually spent the the day looking around the city of St. Louis. Ferguson is a suburb of St. Louis. So we're driving around St. Louis and we're learning about the history of St. Louis. One of the most significant events of St. Louis is that the, land, the landmark that is central to St. Louis is this huge arch. Uh, you've seen it in all the photos. It looks like half of the McDonald's symbol, right? It's this arch. And uh, that was built as an expression of manifest destiny. The idea of looking westward, the arch faces westward. And the idea that we're going to go and conquer the rest of this continent. And that all the good we've done in the Mississippi east of it, we're going to go and take that to the west of it. Now, there are a couple of problems with that. And that problem is that we're not looking at a blank slate in the rest of the United States, rest of America. We're looking at thousands of civilizations, millions of Native Americans already on those lands. But manifest destiny says those lives, red lives, do not matter because we're going to build this country and keep going westward. And so even if we wipe out millions of people, which we did, even if we wipe out thousands of civilizations, which we did, we're going to just keep marching westward. So St. Louis becomes a symbol of manifest destiny and westward expansion, which at its root says red lives do not matter. Also in St. Louis, Missouri was a state that came into the Union under the Missouri Compromise. The Missouri Compromise essentially said, we need to balance out the slave states and the non-slave states. By taking in Missouri, which was a slave state, we will keep that balance and slavery cannot be overturned. So by accepting Missouri into the state at that time, it allowed slavery to continue for yet several more years after that. Again, the nation said, black lives do not matter. The union is so much more important than that. So we'll take Missouri as a state, the Missouri Compromise, so that slavery can continue because black lives do not matter. The third thing that happens in St. Louis, you go to the federal courthouse in St. Louis even to this day, one of the courthouses have been retired. It is now a museum, and is a museum about the Dred Scott decision. Dred Scott was a freed slave. He was given his freedom by his former masters, And he was living his freedom, but the children of his former master says, we want Dred Scott back. We're going to take him back into slavery. He went all the way up to the federal court, and the federal court says, Dred Scott, even though you are a free person, your life does not matter because you are a black person. The federal government, through the courthouse in St. Louis, the decision was handed down right in the middle of St. Louis, black lives do not matter. So now you have an individual who's been told over and over and over again by society, your life does not matter. And then when he was gunned down, still his life did not matter. And we have been part of a society that has continually said that black lives matter less than other lives in our country. And we've seen this over and over and over and over again that we have literally dead bodies littering our streets and they are bodies of black men and black women. And so we can walk away from that and say it has nothing to do with us. We're Asian Americans. We came along much later than this hollow went down. Or we can say, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. As we sang earlier, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And if God had given the image of God to Michael Brown, to Tamir Rice, to Alton Sterling, and his image is, now lays dead, then that breaks the heart of God. Michael Brown's body was left out in the sun, sun very much like this, middle of August in St. Louis, from noon to four o'clock, the body was left out there. Forget about the shooting for a moment. You do not leave a dead body out there for four hours when it's surrounded by police. You don't do that. But there was a denigration of that black body. There's been repeated devaluing of black bodies. Now we can walk away from that and say, it has nothing to do with us. Or we could say, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. My friends, when we hear these reports, will we turn it off, click to a different webpage, or will we say, Lord, where is your heart in the middle of all this suffering, in the middle of all this pain? Don't jump so quickly to the triumphant. It's going to be okay. But there are places where we stay in the midst of that suffering, not just our own, but the suffering of others, and say, Lord, Lord, let my heart be broken by the things that break your heart. I'm going to close with a, a, a final story about um, how maybe it's time for us to move out of our comfort places. Uh, as an Asian American, second-generation Asian American, I understand that um, I've been given much privilege. Um, I, I have two master's degrees and two doctorate degrees. Um, I was able to go to schools that were not available for minorities 50 years ago. Um, And that's because of the blood, sweat, tears, and lives that were given on my behalf by the African American community. Uh, A few years ago I was asked to speak at a uh, a gathering on, on Martin Luther King's holiday at Boston College. And they asked me to be a keynote as an Asian American to speak at the MLK celebration at Boston College. I gave the keynote address and one of the first things I said is, the only reason I can stand up here as an Asian American speaking to Boston College, the only reason I can stand up here and say that I have these degrees, the only reason I can stand up here and to be able to say that I own a home and that I can raise my family and relatives safely, the only reason I can stand up here is because of the blood, sweat, tears and sacrifice of the African-American community, not just for their own community, but for all of Americans. And so I was able to say thank you to the African-American community. One of the people in that gathering was one of the key leaders and worship leaders of the civil rights movement in the South. He made the whole group get up, cross arms like this they did, like they did in the civil rights movement, and sang as a whole community, We Shall Overcome. One of the the most profound moments of my life to have been able to say thank you to one of the key leaders of the civil rights movement because I would not be standing and have the opportunities that I've had were it not for the blood, sweat, tears, and live sacrifice for the African American community. And I raise that challenge to you now. In the midst of a world and a country that is fragmenting deeply along racial lines, will you choose to walk away Or will you say, Lord, how can my heart be broken by the broken heart of God and transform not just my life, but also my community? Let me pray for us. Have mercy, Lord, for we have taken the gospel and we have cheapened it. We have appropriated the gospel message to mean that we have better lives for ourselves, that we're happy for ourselves we have taken the gospel to mean that we accumulate blessing upon blessing upon blessing and we have failed to see the suffering and pain that comes and the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus i ask lord that you would have mercy upon us and call us not into just into places of celebration but also into places of suffering i pray for wisdom knowledge discernment, understanding that comes not from our own thoughts but from the heart of God. May we know your heart and how how your heart is broken for the lost but also for the hurting and for the suffering. We pray this only in the name of Jesus, only in the power of the Spirit who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever hope for or imagine. Let's all stand and uh, continue in our worship.